We're starting 1 Peter. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter. And before we get into our text this evening, uh, something that I've been wrestling with that I, I would encourage you to wrestle with as well is what is God doing in the midst of all of the circumstances and situations that we find ourselves in? There's two things at play right now. We, we see COVID taking place, but we also see all of the injustice that is taking place in our country. And there's much tension right now in our country uh, as we're gathered here together uh, in worship. And what is it that the Lord is speaking to your heart? What, what message is he giving to you and how does he want you to respond? And one of the things that God has been placing on my heart is that Jesus is our anthem to really focus upon Christ and, and him crucified. More than ever, we need to understand the love of Christ for us personally and for the world. That God's love would be dispensed in our hearts. We would know the height and the depth and the width of God's love and that we would see one another through the lens of God's love. That we would see the body of Christ through the lens of God's love, but we would see each and every person that this is someone that God loves that Jesus died for, that he sent his son for. So as we go to the word tonight, let's cry out to the Lord in prayer for our community, for our country, that the love of God would be demonstrated, known, declared, understood. So would you pray with me? Father, we come before you and we know that you are the only one that can answer the difficulty that we're experiencing in our country and in our nation in our city. And Jesus, we do ask that your love would be made known in our hearts, that your love would be shed abroad, that we could see ourselves and everyone that we come in contact, that you are loved by you. Lord, we lift up our country to you, and we do pray for justice. You tell us in your word to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you. Lord, we pray where there is violence, Lord, that you would bring peace. We don't have the answers, but we know that you do. And for for each and every one of us, we want to press into you tonight. Lord, we pray for your will in our lives. We pray for your will in our, our community. So Lord, as we study this very important letter in First Peter, as believers are going through hard times, as believers are being challenged, that we would be encouraged. So Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So First Peter chapter 1, we're going to be looking at the first 13 verses. First Peter chapter 1 verse 1. Hope is the theme of this epistle, First Peter. And oftentimes we think of hope as a whim or a wish. I hope that this takes place. But the biblical definition of hope is this confident expectation of coming good. As we're going to read, we'll see a group of believers that have been dispersed because of persecution. Their lives are in absolute turmoil. Try to imagine having to leave your home and leave your city because you're a Christian, 
because you're a follower of Christ and now you're in a new land, learning a new language, trying to find a job and wondering if your food, family's going to have food to be able to eat. And Paul, or excuse me, Peter, as he writes this epistle, he says, I want you to have hope. You've got hope in the midst of this trial and this difficulty. Trials will come and trials will go. They'll be in all different shapes and different sizes. But one thing that we know is that God is the God of hope. And those trials don't have to rob us from our hope. So my prayer for us tonight is that our hope would be alive. That we would find hope in the promises of God. That we would find hope in the resurrection of Christ. And as we look around, many times there's cause and reason to feel hopelessness, whether it's the chaos in our society, whether it's injustice that's taking place, or it's rioting that is taking place, or it's coronavirus. Before you know it, we can find ourselves living in a state of of hopelessness. The enemy is an opportunist, and he wants to come, and he wants to steal us of what Jesus came to give us, and that is the abundant life. So as we look around, yes, there's reason for hopelessness, but as we look to Christ, there's great reason for hope. So verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter introduces himself as the apostle of Jesus Christ. The word apostle means to be sent out. He's been sent out by Jesus Christ. He's been commissioned to go and share the gospel and plant churches. This man, Peter, he was a fisherman that grew up on the Sea of Galilee. He was rough around the edges. He had a great way of saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. It's been declared about Peter that he had foot and mouth disease because he was always sticking his foot into his mouth. On several occasions, he gets corrected and rebuked by Christ. At one point, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. Peter was also rebuked by the Father audibly from heaven on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter bragged and boasted that even if these deny you, I will never deny you. But he was humbled and he did the thing that he never thought that he would do. He denied the Lord. So we see in Peter a man, a person that's flawed like us, someone that we can relate to. Peter's loved by Christ, and Peter loved Christ and was willing to follow Christ, and Peter's life is a testimony to God's grace. Peter's life is a testimony that God doesn't give up on Peter, that he's there to see him through, to pray for him at his worst hour, to die for his sins when Peter was rejecting the Lord. Peter gets restored by the risen Savior and is instructed by Jesus to go and feed my sheep to tend my lambs. In the book of Acts, the Spirit of God comes upon Peter, and Peter's a changed man. He's not a perfect man, but he's, he's a changed man. And this scared fisherman who is denying the Lord is empowered by the Spirit and gives bold testimony of who God is. And in his first message, 3,000 people get saved. This man, Peter, is the one who is writing this epistle, and he says, to the pilgrims, to the pilgrims. This is how he addresses Christians. This is how he addresses brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're taking notes, write this down, that there's hope as pilgrims. We have hope as pilgrims. One thing that we know 
in this life is that we are just passing through. Pilgrim is someone who is a temporary resident in a foreign land. This is not my home. I'm just passing through. I'm an alien. I'm a sojourner. I'm a pilgrim. When you're on vacation, you have that short-term mindset, don't you? I'm just here for a few days. I'm here for a few weeks, and then I'll be home. So I don't have to worry about it too much. Maybe on vacation, things go our way. That's always nice. But I'm sure all of us have some stories of vacations that didn't go so well. But in the back of your mind, you're, I'm just passing through. I, I'm a pilgrim. I'm a sojourner. I'm a foreigner. And for us to understand that this world is not our home. Now, sometimes as we go through this life, we start to put our roots deep in this world. We start to feel like this life is never going to end, that we're going to be here forever. But the truth is, is we are just passing through. We're, we're temporary. Think about your life in terms of all of eternity. All of eternity. Such a short time that we're here on this earth. Jesus had this same mindset, this mindset of a pilgrim, this mindset that he was passing through. In John 13, verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Scriptures declare about Christ, he knew that he would depart to be with the Father. And knowing that he would depart, he chose to love and love the disciples to the end. Jesus lived with this mindset that he had limited time here on this earth and that he was just passing through. In Hebrews 11, it describes the heroes of faith and their trust in God. And they too understood that they were pilgrims. These all died in faith, not having received the promises but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Brother and sister in Christ, fellow believer, have you embraced that you're a pilgrim? Have you embraced that you're a stranger? Have you come to this truth and understanding of knowing, hey, this life was not meant to be comfortable? But the promise is that it's brief. It's momentary. It's momentary. So as pilgrims, we have hope. Whatever you're going through, it's temporary. It's only going to last in this life. And compare that with all of eternity. We're pilgrims. Gives us hope. Pilgrims of the dispersion. This is probably referring to those that are dispersed because of the persecution. Nero began to persecute the church in AD 64. So it's probably right around that time frame when Peter writes this letter. He's encouraging believers that have been dispersed because of persecution. In Pontus, in Galatia, in Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithylia. Five names and four are Roman providences in Asia Minor on the Black Sea, modern day Turkey. So they're dispersed into these Roman colonies, these Roman provinces, having to change their culture, having to leave their homes and families behind. They're living out trial and challenge and persecution, fleeing from persecution. And in the midst of this, Peter reminds them, the Holy Spirit encourages them of who they are. We need to be encouraged 
of who we are, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Second thing that we take hope in, it's hope in the elect. Because we're elect, we're chosen by God. He has chosen us unto himself according to foreknowledge. This is amazing. God is able to see all things. He knows all things. He knew what we would decide about Christ. And he chooses us unto himself. What's most amazing about the foreknowledge of God is that he knows everything about us, but yet he would still choose us. I think Peter feels this in his own life as he declares, look, God has known everything about me. All these mistakes that I've made, the sins that I've done, the way that I've fallen short, but yet God still chose me. He still elected me unto himself. And it's a powerful thing to be chosen. Even on the simplest level, when it's a pickup game and kids are playing a game of football and there's two team captains and you get chosen. When your spouse chose to marry you, you were chosen. When there's an adoption that takes place and those kids are, are chosen by the parents. When you get hired into a job and you're chosen, they say, we want you to be able to work for us. And how much more so to be elect by God that he has chosen us. And that brings us hope. Even in the most difficult of circumstances, we're chosen by God. And as we're chosen by God, it says, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience in the sprinkling the blood of Jesus Christ. God has saved us unto himself, and he set us apart. The word sanctification means to be set apart. Now, the word justification is declared righteous by God. Different word. We're justified by faith, positionally. We're declared righteous by God, just as though we've never sinned. Sanctification is the process of God setting apart our lives and transforming us to be more like him, to make us into the image of Christ. And this is taking place by the Spirit. Thankfully, the Spirit of God is sanctifying us. The Spirit of God is working in us the deeper knowledge of Christ. And you've probably noticed this in your life, this progression where we continue to struggle and sin, but God is setting us apart. He's making us more like him. We're sanctified through the Spirit. And obedience and the sprinkling of the blood both speak of sanctification. As we're walking with the Lord in obedience, God is sanctifying us. The sprinkling of blood is a big part of the Old Testament. We find in Exodus chapter 24, when the covenant was given, there was the sprinkling of blood. The priests in Exodus 29, their garments were sprinkled with, with blood, symbolizing that they were set apart for God's work. When the leper was to be healed in Leviticus 14, he was to be sprinkled with blood. So the blood of Jesus has been sprinkled upon us for forgiveness of sins, and also for us to be set apart unto the Lord. Many times in trial, it seems like the trial owns us. The difficulty owns us. Maybe you feel that way by some of these things that are taking place or personal trial in your life. But it's not the trial that owns us. God owns us. As we've been learning in 1 Corinthians that we're bought with a price. The blood of Jesus covers us. 
We belong to him. No, this trial doesn't own me. This trial's not what's going to define me ultimately. But I'm defined by the fact that I'm loved by God. I'm, I'm defined by the fact that Jesus' blood was shed for me so my sins are forgiven and my life can belong to the Lord. And we find joy. We find satisfaction. We find fulfillment in surrendering to this position, to surrendering into the sanctification that God has given unto us. We're sanctified in the blood of Jesus. And Peter prays for grace. Peter prays for peace to be multiplied and I pray that for us as well, that God would give us a fresh outpouring of grace, that God would give us a fresh experience of his peace. This is what we've received. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we have hope in the fact that we're pilgrims. We have hope in the fact because we're elect, but we also have hope in the resurrection of Christ. Peter says, blessed be God the Father. He praises God. He worships God because he's begotten us to a living hope. According to his abundant mercy, he's brought us into this place of hope. The word begotten means to be produced again or born again. The idea is is that hope is rebirthed in our lives once again. And I like this. Because sometimes as we journey, we do lose hope. Sometimes as we journey, we do get discouraged and hope has to be revived in our lives. Peter understood this as he drifted from the Lord and walked away from the Lord and was in rebellion to who God was. Jesus had to come and restore hope unto Peter. What did the resurrection mean to Peter personally? Jesus being alive meant that his hope was alive. If Jesus is not alive, then Peter is dead in his sins. There's no hope for Peter. He's denied the Lord. But because Jesus is alive, Peter is forgiven. His old sins are passed away. And he's raised in newness of life. It meant the forgiveness of sin for Peter. It also meant victory over sin for Peter. Like I mentioned, this transformation, this change that took place in Peter's life at the death and resurrection of Jesus and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Because Christ is alive, church, I want you to hear this. We have hope that Christ will change our lives. That our sins are forgiven, but also that the power of sin has been broken. Why do we have hope that we can overcome anger? Why do we have hope that we can overcome lust? Why do we have hope that we can overcome covetousness or discouragement in our lives? Because Christ is alive. And the penalty of sin is broken, but the power of sin is broken in our lives. Christ being alive for Peter also meant that he had an eternal home. Peter heard the words That if I go, I go to prepare a place for you and I will come and receive you unto myself. Peter was there as he watched Jesus ascend to be with the Father and heard the words of the angel that said, look, just as Jesus has gone up from the Mount of Olives, he's gonna return. My question for you tonight, my challenge for me tonight is this, is your hope alive? Would you say your confident expectation of coming good, is it alive? Or would you say that your hope is dead? 
or your hope is discouraged or your hope is dormant. Christ is alive. Easter Sunday is wonderful. There's all of this anticipation and celebration as we remember the resurrection of Christ, but Easter is not to be celebrated just one morning a year. The resurrection is a lifestyle that we live in. Christ is alive. Christ is present with us. Christ is victorious over this world. If there is a message that needs to be declared, that needs to be preached from the mountaintops, it's this, that we have hope in Jesus Christ. Has COVID-19 caused Christ to not be alive? Has the dissension and unrest in our country caused Christ to not be alive? Have the challenges that we're facing personally caused Christ to not be alive? There's no trial, there's no difficulty, there's no sin, there's no shortcoming that can cause Christ to not be alive. He rose from the dead. Jesus was the lamb that was slain upon the cross, but he was the lion that roared from the empty tomb. He's defeated the empty tomb. And because the tomb is empty, we have this assurance in our lives of going, I know that I'm pressing on. I know that I'm pressing into eternal life. He's begotten us again to living hope. And how he's done that, it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through Christ being raised from the dead. Here's what we received. To an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you. Take that in for just a moment. An inheritance incorruptible. Do you think that there was financial loss for these believers as they were persecuted and had to leave their homes? Absolutely. Was their inheritance, was there a lack of finances. And Paul reminds them, you've got an inheritance that is incorruptible, that cannot be corrupted, cannot be defiled, and it does not fade away. So many inheritance, financial inheritance, they can be corrupted. I've seen so many families fight over inheritance when there is money when someone passes away. It can be corrupted. It can be defiled. It can fade away. An inheritance can be in the stock market and it can fade away quickly as as we know. But for us, our inheritance in heaven is reserved. It's reserved and it does not fade away. It's not corrupted and it is not defiled. At times like this, it does cause us to see what a wonderful inheritance that we have in heaven. How wonderful heaven is going to be. The streets are paved with gold. As the economy goes up and down and there's much uncertainty, causes the 401k in heaven to look even better, doesn't it? It's not affected. It's not corruptible. It's undefiled. You can know that you've got a reservation in heaven. How do you know? Because Jesus told us, that as we trust him for salvation, we have everlasting life. It's something that we possess. So many great things about our inheritance in heaven, but the greatest thing, the greatest thing about our inheritance in heaven is that we are the children of God. 
that we'll be able to enjoy this relationship with our Father. Scripture tells us that when we see Him, we will be like Him. Put your focus upon heaven, upon that inheritance that God has given to us. How do you know you're going to make it? How do you know you're going to make it to that reservation? Lots of travel reservations that have been canceled during this time. How do you know you're actually going to get to this reservation in heaven? This is a great promise. Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Did you hear this? You are kept by the power of God through faith. As you're trusting in the gospel, as you're trusting in the finished work of Christ, his death and resurrection, that God keeps you. He keeps you. Philippians 1.6 says, He that began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. We can be confident in this. Are you a good starter with projects but a terrible finisher? Well, God's the ultimate starter and the ultimate finisher. He has begun the work, but he's also faithful to complete it. He will be faithful. In Jude 24, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. He is able to keep you from stumbling. He's going to keep you by his power. You're going to make it because he's good, because he's faithful. You're going to get there. I'm going to get there to that reservation in heaven. The last thing that we have hope in tonight, the first is hope in pilgrims, hope in being elect, hope in the resurrection, but we also have hope in trial. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, if need be, you be you have been grieved by various trials. So we rejoice in heaven. We rejoice in that we're kept by the power of God. Yet, for a little while... In this life, if need be, we're grieved by various trials. There's three things here I want to point out. And the first is for a little while, for a little while. The trial is momentary. And Peter here says it's only going to last for a little while. Many trials in this life are cyclatory. They're seasonal. They'll last for maybe a long time. Five months, five years, 15 years. But then oftentimes it's followed by a season of blessing. There's some trials that will last for the rest of your life. You know, I know there's certain difficulties that we're going to walk with until we go home to be with the Lord. But even those trials that are lifelong, it's just a little while. It's just a little while. You're closer to heaven than you've ever been before. We're going to be in God's presence But then also, trials do hurt. They do hurt. It says you've been grieved, grieved by various trials. Sometimes as believers, with the hope of heaven and with the promise that God's working all things together for good, we walk around and we pretend like trials don't hurt. But they do hurt. Peter says you've been grieved by these trials. The fact that you've been persecuted, some of you have lost your lives, You've had to flee your home. It's hurt. Jesus wept. Jesus experienced trial. His pain was very real upon the cross. And be comforted by being able to be honest with God and with yourself and say, man, this hurts. This, This grieves me. And I'm struggling with this. And I'm 
wrestling with this and at times I'm, I'm confused that that's real and Peter's real with us. Then I also like that he describes trials as various because trials come in a lot of different shapes and sizes and varieties. And some trials in life are very monumental. They're very difficult. We would put them on the scale of 10. This is hard. But then there's trials that are maybe a five. And then there's some trials that are a three or a two or even a one. Like if a car breaks down, that's a real trial. Yeah, and it's not as difficult as a loved one passing away or, or a chronic illness, but it's still a real need. And it's, it's a difficulty if the furnace goes out, that, that's, a, that's a real challenge. And we would admit there's a lot greater challenges in life, but man, this, this is difficult. So there's a lot of different kinds of trials that come in our lives. But here's where the hope and trial comes. This is what we lay hold on. That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God desires for our faith to be genuine, for our faith to be real and our faith to be authentic. And the way that God refines our faith is by allowing us to go through to trial. This is an amazing statement if we lay hold of it, that our faith being purified is more precious than gold. If we were to say, okay, I'll take $10,000 or I will take a deeper trust in God. It would be easy to say, oh, I'll take the money. I'll, I'll take the $10,000. But from God's perspective, he sees something that is more valuable than money that will perish, more valuable than gold that will perish, and that's our faith. That's our faith. Faith in God, faith in humility are God's sweet spots. What do I mean? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. What God is looking for in our lives is for us to trust him for who he is and what he said. And then humility is the way that those promises are appropriated into our lives, a way we're able to receive God's goodness into our lives, faith and humility. So our faith gets tested. Our faith gets revealed by the trial, by the difficulty. We don't really know the state of our faith until we go through a trial. If you're in school or remember at a time when you were in school, you know that a test reveals your knowledge. The test doesn't lie. And a trial is going to reveal the state of our faith. And, and sometimes the trial reveals, oh, that we trust the Lord. We go, wow, praise God. I have discovered that I do trust, this, trust the Lord in this area of my life. But other times the trial reveals that our faith is lacking and that we need to trust the Lord, that we need to surrender this area of our lives over to the Lord. And that's worth it. God is purifying and he's refining our faith for this purpose, for this end, that when Christ is revealed, that our faith would be found to be praiseworthy and honorable to the Lord. That it could be said when Christ returns for the rapture of the church that we have faith in God. 
at the end of our lives that it could be said that we have finished the race and we have kept the faith. That others would see, yeah, Eric was a sinner, Peter was a sinner, we're all sinners, but there was a trust in God. There was a faith in God. There was a a surrendering to God. There was an acknowledgement of his goodness and an acknowledgement of his faithfulness. So God is more concerned with the condition of my faith than my present comfort. And this helps to produce hope inside of me when I go, Lord, I am not comfortable. I'm not liking this trial. I'm not liking being tested by fire. But I realize that you're strengthening my faith. You're refining my faith. You're showing the cracks and the weakness in my faith. Remember with faith that it's a choice that we make, not based upon our feelings. Now there's times, there's moments where we feel like trusting the Lord. And we have all of those positive emotions to go with our faith. But there's other times where our emotions aren't there. And our emotions might even be telling us the exact opposite of trusting God. But we can choose to trust the Lord. We can choose to live in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust the Lord with all of your heart. God, I'm choosing you to to trust you. I am wrestling with my emotions. I know my emotions can betray me, but I am trusting you in this difficulty. I'm trusting you in this trial. What do we do when we realize that our faith is weak? Well, we be honest. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And also we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Some good friends of ours years ago lost their young son in a tragic accident. We didn't know them at that time, but soon after the loss of their son, we became very good friends with them. And our friend Casey, she wrote a book about her experience of the tragic death of her son. And she wrote that what got her through was the promises of God and meditating and fighting for the promises of God and allowing the promises of God to ring true in her heart and in her life. And that's true for all of us. It's getting into God's word and as we get into God's word, it's gonna build our faith. We can't navigate trials without the word of God and the promises of God. And the person of Jesus Christ, to press into the person of Jesus Christ, he understands the difficulty. He's a man of sorrows, holding on to the promises of God, the person of Christ, and knowing that he's refining our faith and he's building our faith. Isn't it so beautiful and so attractive when you spend time with a believer at the end of their life and what shines is their faith, their faith their present faith of going home to be with the Lord, but also reminiscing with them about God's faithfulness throughout their life. It's that faith and that trust in the Lord. In verse eight, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So we haven't seen the Lord, but yet we choose to love him. And we experience joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. Despite the circumstance, because of who Jesus is and being in relationship with him, we can have joy. These believers who are dispersed can have joy. 
receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your soul, there will become a day where you will no longer need faith because faith is believing what you haven't seen, but someday you're going to see it. So it becomes to the completion of your faith. Paul then describes about the glory of our faith in Christ. I keep saying Paul, but it's Peter. <laughs> Paul's written so many more epistles, it's just easy to say Paul. It's Peter. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The salvation that we enjoy, the prophets looked into with great detail. As they were given the Old Testament scriptures, they knew that it was speaking of the Christ. Christ means Messiah. They knew it was speaking of the sufferings of Christ. Write down Isaiah 53 and Psalms 22, these amazing Old Testament prophecies of the suffering of Christ. And they searched carefully and they inquired about this grace and this salvation that they knew was to come, but yet they weren't experiencing. In verse 2, to them it was revealed, not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. So we're enjoying what the prophets prophesied and the angels are looking into salvation. Think about this for just a moment. The angels behold Christ in his glory. They know Jesus as God. They've seen Jesus create the universe. Then they witness Jesus coming in human flesh. Creator of the universe, God, six, seven pounder in Bethlehem. The creator dependent upon his creation. Then they see Jesus humbling himself upon the cross, dying and rising again, victorious over sin and death, choosing then to live inside of us. Look down at us and now see Christ, yes, ascended next to the Father, but also residing in our hearts. And they're going, wow, this is something to look into. This is the grace of God. Only the grace of God could do this and accomplish this. In verse 13, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I wanted to continue into verse 13 this evening because the response to the fact that we're pilgrims, the response to the fact that we're elect, the response to the fact that Christ is risen, the response to the fact that God is refining our faith is gird up the loins of your mind. What in the world does that mean? The ESV puts it this way, preparing your minds for action. The Jewish men would wear robes and as they were taking action, if they were gonna run, they would have to tie up their robe. They'd have to gird up their, their robe. And we have to gird up the loins of our mind. We have to prepare our mind for action and be sober, which is level-headed, not prone to highs and lows. And we rest, we rest on hope, upon the grace of, that's going to be revealed to us at Jesus Christ. 
You've heard me say this before. I know it's true in my life and is true in yours as well. The battle is won and lost in the mind. In the mind. If we're wanting to live in hope instead of living in despair, we have to prepare our mind for action. We have to prepare our mind for battle. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We're given the armor of God. And what protects our mind? The helmet of salvation. Remembering that we're saved. Remembering that Christ is risen from the dead. I would encourage you and challenge myself to memorize and meditate scripture upon scripture and hold on to those promises of God. So would you pray with me and let's pray that God would fill us afresh with his hope this evening. Father, we don't want this just to be an academic study. We know our own flesh and the challenging times that we find ourselves in that it's easily to be hopeless. But as we read your word, it's very clear that you want us resting and living in hope. You're the God of the resurrection. And because of that, there's no hopeless situation. So right now, we surrender our hearts to you and ask that you would take us from a place of discouragement to a place of hope. In Jesus' name, amen.